Well, hello again. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And today we're going to come back to a question that we sort of touched on briefly last year in one of our most widely listened to episodes. Uh, Philip, I don't know if you know this, um, but I think the top rating listened to episode of 2023... Was the life of Philip Jensen. Was... <laughs> no, strangely <laughs> That's no. That's a relief. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was our episode about the voice referendum and the morality of voting yes and no. It was very oh, yes. widely spread around and talked about. I can understand that would be you know, one that people will listen to because it, yeah. it was a very troubling time. It was, and I think... Um, by God's providence, I think we had a take on it, and especially on the morality of how you cast your vote and all those questions that people found stimulating and a bit different and helpful. But it's interesting. I mean, the outcome of the vote, of course, uh, was in a sense to leave us as a divided nation. It was in a sense a vote that didn't leave anyone all that happy. And it, it's perhaps a good time for us to come back, especially in view of a, of a recent event we'll talk about, it's perhaps a good time to come back and think about some of the issues we didn't talk about last year when we talked about the voice referendum, and that is yeah. the state of Indigenous, Anglo, White Australia kind of relations, the problem uh, that the voice was seeking to address, which is the disadvantage and the problems of, of Aboriginal Australians. It's something we almost purposely put to one side as we discuss the issue, but perhaps it's a good time now to come back to it. Well, yes, the, the unhappiness... Those who lost the referendum, so to speak, they're unhappy because they're lost and that they are continuing to be troubled and agitating for, for something. The, the people who were on the winning side, I think they're unhappy that it even happened at all and that money and time and effort was spent and that they were, in a sense, forced to, to take a stand that I'm not quite sure that everyone's... You wouldn't set out in life to say, oh, I want to vote against this kind of thing. It's it's because the proposals come that you vote against it. It's not a proposal that the no people would have ever come up with. So that's why we're all unhappy. I'm, I'm a little wary, Tony, of talking too much, though, about what needs to be done. That is, I'm not a great expert in Indigenous uh, affairs in Australia... Uh, I'm a city dweller. I've lived in the areas of Sydney where um, there are many more Jews than people of uh, Aboriginal descent. <laughs> and so my experience is not a first-hand experience. I know you're a country boy, so you'll have had more experience than I have. Not particularly in my part of the country, But actually. not your part of the country, no. And, so, and the difference between uh, our urban Indigenous population and the far remote uh, indigenous population, it's it's hard to make generalisations. It would seem to me that can actually capture the diversities of situations that are there, and so. But when you look at the statistics, it's it's sobering and it's it's alarming. You know, one one third of the teenagers in the Western Australia jails were of an indigenous background. But only three percent of the population. I mean, that's that's something's wrong there somewhere. Something is wrong. <laughs> it's very seriously wrong. And likewise, the history. You see, I was educated in Australian history, but frankly, when I was educated in Australian history, we paid no real information about Indigenous Australia and what 
happened to them as a consequence of white Australia. And it's almost in reverse now. I find the children I talk to and the young people I talk to almost ignorant of colonial history from the white person's point of view as they're learning consistently about Indigenous Australia. And so our history has been mistaught and now it's still being mistaught because I don't think Australia has yet come to terms with who we are, uh, including Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australia. So we as a nation have problems, big problems. I think we do, and it's brought into relief by the recent death of Loitcher O'Donoghue, or Lois O'Donoghue as I knew her when I, was, I heard of her growing up in the 80s and 90s, and she discovered then that her name was in fact Loitcher. Um, one of the leading Aboriginal voices, really, of our generation as someone campaigning for Indigenous rights, talking about Indigenous disadvantage, a member of the Stolen Generations, as it called herself, and someone of, of immense ability and of character, an admirable woman in, in many, many yes. respects who, who recently died. And was Australian of the Year back in, in the 1980s, one year there. And rightly recognised as as such. And in the wake of her death, there have been a number of articles about her and about her life. Um, a really interesting one that gave an excerpt from an address she gave, one of the last public addresses she gave, um, where she talked about her own upbringing, her own removal from her family and being placed in a Baptist mission and the various problems of that. Uh, and it's interesting to think our way back to that problem, which for for many contemporary Indigenous Australians, for many Australians full stop, it's kind of like, almost like an original sin. It's almost like our slavery problem. It's one of those moments in our history that we're mostly ashamed about, that we look back on with enormous regret, mm. but that we're conflicted about. Yes, so conflicted we're actually ignorant of it in some ways. That is, what I heard of the Stolen Generation and what I think our most people think is that children who are suffering deprivation in health, in education, in just the deprivation of poverty were taken from their parents to be put into homes where they could be given proper food, proper housing, proper education... And because this was statistically a, a much bigger problem in the Indigenous population, most of them were Indigenous. But that actually wasn't what it was about. It was racism, pure and simple racism that took place in the 1930s. She was born in 1934, 32, something like that, and at the age of two was taken from her parents, as were her siblings. And it was just racism that came from the same eugenics that created Adolf Hitler and the Nazi rejection of Jews. Now, hang on a second. That, that's a big leap. <laughs> Tell me what you mean from our stolen generation policy to eugenics to Adolf Hitler. Explain that one for me. Well, in the 19th century and early 20th century, up to the middle of the 20th century, really, as a result of biology and scientific investigation, people looked into the question of whether your quality of life, your abilities in life came from your genetic background. And so lots of study was spent on the size of brains, the size of heads, the, the ca physiological characteristic, the intelligence testing, etc., of different racial, ethnic, racial groups. And it was considered, especially by white scientists, that we who were European stock were physiologically, mentally uh, superior as, as race. 
this came out of, to some extent, a whole evolutionary view of humanity. Absolutely, of, yes, yes. Darwin and Darwinianism is the father of it all. That's where it moved from, Galton and Darwin and the like, and became very prominent. I mean, a great professor in Melbourne University had a building named after him. He was a thoroughgoing eugenicist. It was the normal investigation of the first half of the 20th century, which, for someone like Adolf Hitler, <laughs> the Jews were inferior human beings and they needed to be... They were a cancer that needed yes. to be expunged yeah, for the sake right. of society. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, part of that was the, the looking at the Indigenous Australians and it was thought at that time that the Indigenous Australians were inferior beings who were unable in the survival of the fittest to survive. And so their declining numbers, especially if you remember in the 19th century, many were killed by European diseases that they couldn't... They had no immunity for. No immunity. And so they were considered to be weaker, frailer. And so they were dying out. But what do you do with the half-castes? And so the half-castes, you see, stopped the dying out of the full bloods and the half-caste could be saved. And so the stolen generation, of which Virgil was one of those examples, she was a half-caste. Her surname is O'Donoghue, Irish father. And so they are rescued in order to be bred back into the Western white community over time. And that would then allow the Indigenous Australians to peter out into oblivion, and for these half-caste children, it's, it's an appalling view of life, a failure to understand the integrity of every human being created in the image of God. But it was the way of thinking in that time explicitly put forward into the government policies at that time. And she spoke of this in those terms. In a recent talk that was published, one of the last public addresses that she gave, interestingly, in a in an Anglican church in, in Adelaide, Lois Loitcher O'Donoghue said something about this. She said, For myself and countless other children, those so-called child protection policies and practices established a vicious cycle of damage that has continued from generation to generation. And let us be clear, the children were not taken because of policies about childhood neglect. They were taken on the basis of race. Because so many of our children were stolen from our families, we were robbed of the opportunity to learn our own ways and of bringing up our own children. You do not learn about love and care from books. You learn that by experience. And she goes on further to say, the history is important in understanding how a whole generation was denied the chance to pass on cultural knowledge. It was, of course, government policy of the time to take half-caste children, in adverted commas, which is what we were known as, and civilise us and to be acceptable in white society. In a book written in Adelaide in 1937 called Pearls from the Deep, we were seen as, and she's quoting here from that book, waste material, rescued from the degradation of camp life, brought up from the depths of ignorance, superstition and vice to be fashioned as gems to adorn God's crown. Terribly sad, isn't it? It's appalling. And Christians didn't always have this attitude. You go back into the 19th century, it was the Christians who insisted that the indigenous peoples of Australia were, as their phrase was, one blood. They were not lesser human beings. They had the rights. Of, and you have missionaries like Mr Threckold working up in the central coast of New South Wales who were giving their lives to help understand the language of the indigenous peoples, 
learn how to write it, learn how to teach them to read it, to translate the Bible into their language, kinds of things that today you would think were advanced anthropological values. In the 1820s, a Christian missionary would have that view. It was sadly Darwinianism and the whole rise of eugenics that led to this appalling mistreatment of so many children. What a dreadful thing to do to the mothers, to take a little child away from a mother. It, it, almost, it almost doesn't matter in terms of poverty. The mother-child bond is just so profound and important. To do this to the children was just a shocking, horrible thing to have done. Now, in the way the narrative normally goes, and I'm just going on the the way it's been portrayed in popular culture and sort of what I've come to understand about the Christian involvement in these things and the church involvement in running orphanages and so on, it's never talked about this eugenics approach, the idea that the it was government policy that was driving it. It's sometimes seen as if the churches were driving it almost as a kind of a desire, to, as this quote puts it, we, as we said earlier, to to take the Aboriginal children away and Christianise them. And some, and often the church is seen as the bad guy, and, and Christian churches are seen as the bad guys in this whole process. And we did, I think, do some things that were bad, but it's more complicated than that, isn't oh, it? It is much more complicated. That's right. Yes, let's take the bad. We were complicit with the government in the process. That's the first stage of it. Secondly, not every Christian organisation, not every Christian orphanage always only ever did the right thing. There were bad people there, there were hard people there, there were cruel people there. And so there were bad situations and circumstances. By being complicit, we were complicit in taking children from their mothers or at least receiving the children that Aboriginal protection societies had taken from their mothers. We were the recipients of them to look after them. And that meant that we had children who were under terrific stress in our care. But the government didn't provide for them. The government used Christian agencies to provide for them. Yes, we wanted the children to become Christians, but we wanted the parents to become Christians too. Yes, our provisions for them were weak and poorly, but then it was the Depression. Everybody was weak and poor. It was 1933. <laughs> yes, that was a time. I mean, the, she writes of always eating these cabbages. Well, yeah, I can understand that. My father ate tripe and chocos. I mean, that, that, was, that was a period of time. I mean, you, you can't judge from here easily what the circumstances, like the people who ran her particular one, a couple of Baptist ladies, they gave their life for the care of little supposed orphans, little children. They weren't making money out of it. They weren't getting rich out of it. They weren't getting fame and fortune out of it. Okay, one of them was harsh and the other was loving. Well, that's life. I'm sorry that A lot of people's families are exactly like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that is true too. doesn't justify it, doesn't make it right, but to portray the missionaries as being particularly nasty, evil people, is unfair when it was the government policy and the government policy came from atheism, whereas the Christian policy, which used the government to advance what it was wanting to advance, they were not doing it out of dislike of children or wishing them to die. They actually did care. And although I would be opposed to it strongly now, there were good effects. You know, even with this very famous woman... She became famous through her education and her training. She had to fight hard, vastly too hard for it, had to actually petition the government to allow her to become a nurse. I mean, dreadful racism. 
But she could do that because she had been taken and she had been given an education. And that doesn't justify taking her. It's an irony, isn't it? Yes. It's just very complicated. It's not, this is all good, this is all bad. (laughs) Life is not like that. But thinking back into the complication of that circumstance and to the Christian churches who, as you say, were complicit... What is there in that for us to learn? Because at the time, everybody agreed and it was the, it was the socially acceptable and very much the, the thought pattern and accepted wisdom of the time that this was the right thing to do. I mean, we look back on it now and say, how could they think that was the right thing to do? But everyone did at that point. Yes, it is a problem. We all live in the bubble of our own culture, our own subculture. And that's why we Christians need to fight hard to read our scriptures properly, to have the scriptures critique not other people's cultures, I mean, that's true, but to critique our own culture, to be able to see how the forces that work in our Western materialistic culture of today actually do not come from Christianity to see where those some forces do and where we need to part company or be with it. Here is a, a book I've got in my hand, Tony, that our listeners can't see, called Fallen Women, Problem Girls, Unmarried Mothers and the Professionalization of Social Work, 1890 to 1945, by an academic, an American academic, Regina G. Kunzel. It's not a Christian book. It's published by Yale University. It's in Regina. It seems to me to be a, a feminist unbeliever. But she's written a very interesting parallel to our issue of the Indigenous Australians. That is, what happens to unmarried mothers? Well, in the 1890s and the first couple of decades of the 20th century, the only people who cared for the unmarried mothers in the sense of actually doing anything about it were Christians. We set up they set up, but I'm saying we, we, I'm owning the Christian activity here. We set up homes for unmarried mothers to help them in the confinement, to have the birth, and did more. Not only that, helped them in the early days of breastfeeding and of having the baby, and in giving them job training and finding positions for them where they could continue to live as single mothers looking after their own children. That was happening from the 1890s through 1920s, 30s. But you see, the title of this book says you something else. The Professionalisation of Social Work. Because from the 1920s onwards, social work became an academic phenomenon with professional standards and status. Uh, up until then, it was kind generosity of charitable work, so to speak. But now it became a profession where you got a degree and you had status And therefore, you had to have scientific investigations as to the best ways to treat people under which circumstances. But of course, social science is not very scientific. By the 1940s, it had been determined by the professional social workers that these dear old ladies in their generosity of Christian work had failed to produce the best practice for unmarried mothers. The best practice for unmarried mothers from the middle of the 20th century was to take their babies from them as soon as they were born and give them as little contact with the baby as possible and then adopt the babies out elsewhere. (laughs) But of course the only homes for unmarried mothers were Christian homes and the Christians running the Christian homes were persuaded by the professionalism of social work to do best practice, take the babies from the mothers 
before any bonding could have happened, which, of course, we now know is ridiculous. The bonding happens in utero before the baby's born. It was devastating to the young women. It was unhelpful to the babies. Yeah, you can see good things. Certain children were adopted and that was to their benefit. But now we are horrified by this whole process. And now these homes are attacked for doing such a wicked thing as taking babies away from their mothers. I've seen a few movies and TV shows that have delved into this narrative and the horror of these these nasty Christian homes that that callously snatch the babies from their mothers because of the horror of the immorality of it all and, and yes. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really, they, they play it up big time. But It was secularist social work professionals who did it. Who drove, in a sense, again, a policy that they saw as the best practice policy that the smart people of the time thought was best and the Christians went along with it. And, and became complicit. Yeah. So we were in guilty. much the same way, yes. We were guilty, but... It was not what we set out to do, but we got conned by social science into thinking the world knew better than we did as to what to do. It's an interesting parallel in the, the, the kinds of... There's lots of other parallels too that you can think of in, in this terms of it. educational methods. See, Christians set up schools. We were the inventors of public education. And so there are all kinds of things we do or have done in schools. But over time, social scientists come up with best practice education, which over time has turned out not, not to, be. to be best practice <laughs> education. Be we're, we're moving away from phonics. We're not going to teach people to sound, kids to sound out words anymore. And then now we are back because we discovered that it, the whole of language approach never really worked. That's right. And around 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 the fads go. Uh, the open classroom where we have three or four classes and five teachers all in the same area. That's now being questioned. Are people going back to have each classroom with its own desks and blackboard out the front and teaching children? I mean, you know, a Christian school will take on the best practice education. The best practice education has been involved by, created by social scientists. The beauty of science is you can be found out to be wrong. Chemistry, physics, it works well. But humanities, call them humanities, don't call it social science because it's not very scientific. It, it can't be. Why can't it be? Well, the very activity itself undermines the objectivity of it. You can't really find, you know, we're going to treat one group of children one way and then we'll have a control group with another group. And so let them fall behind educationally while we do our experiment. And of course, over time, as you accept an idea for 20 years... It creates its own environment. Take grammar. We decided teaching grammar was a bad thing in the 80s. By the turn of the century, the 1980s, by the turn of the century, we worked out the children need to learn grammar. So let's now teach grammar. Only trouble was the teachers had been educated without grammar. So they didn't know grammar either. So they couldn't teach grammar. So we had to have special classes for teachers on what grammar was so that they could teach grammar at... The very experiment undermines the activity. That's why economists can never make good predictions. Because if they make a prediction, it changes the economic environment. And therefore, their predictions are no longer impartial or unscientific. It's also because humanity is something you can't put in a test tube or, can, or run an experiment on. Because humans are, are infinitely and incredibly complex as individuals. And then once you start all the infinite, intricate web of interrelations and relationships and the effects we have on one another, the values we have, the things we do, the way our hearts move us or don't move us, our imperfections, our glories, our terrible mistakes, 
humans and human culture and human interaction is fabulously, almost infinitely complex. Yes. And so to think that we can comprehend what is going to be a predictable best practice set of kind of policies that will always work for yes. a group of people That's... and then declare that to be best practice just fails to understand, in a sense, what the Bible says about the incredible complexity of and bigness of the universe and of humanity and the inability and smallness of the human mind to comprehend it. And that's why it's so important to make policies at the local ground level rather than in you know, the capital of the state or the capital of the nation, right? I mean, the northern Queenslanders consider Brisbane as part of New South Wales. Now, for those of us who are not locals, go, go you overseas listeners, go check up an atlas. You know, Sydney is closer to Brisbane than Brisbane is to the northern part of, of Queensland. Queensland is a massive area. But from their perspective, Brisbane can make all the policies they like. But if you live up in tropical Queensland, the policies don't work. It's local is where best decisions are made for people and for society. I'm very happy for you to use that technical term that I can't pronounce. <laughs> I, I think the technical term for this is subsidiarity or something like that. I think that's what the political philosophers call it. The idea that the closer you get to the local environment, the better equipped people are to make decisions about things that directly affect them. And that often, for example, to have schools administrated, administered and run by a smaller local group that knows the area and knows the families and knows the culture, they'll make decisions about schooling and funding and structures better than a huge central agency will because they're just closer on the ground to the complexity of the local. Well, a country school in New South Wales has got to run differently to the kind of urban school I went to. I mean, that's the whole lifestyle of the local kids and their need to help in the, in the family farm has got to be different to the situation in which I was raised. Well, the, the school I went to had one teacher for the whole school. That's years K to six. There were 30 of us in one, one room and we were just lined up in rows all, along there and he taught all of us. I had uh, 50 in my class. <laughs> in your single class? In a single class, and there were four classes of my age group. This is starting to sound like the four Yorkshiremen sketch. I, I'm supposed to say a luxury. <laughs> I used to dream of having 50 people. Yes. Class. But um, you see, it's got to be different, hasn't it? So wh what does this mean for the way we as Christians relate to and interact with the policies and and thought patterns and trends of, of contemporary society and of well, social take, science? Take management. <laughs> You read more management things than I do because I've totally given up on them. They keep changing management schemes. The best practice of management keeps changing, doesn't it? Oh, very much so, yeah. So when you attach church to the best practice management system for your church, you're out of date by the time you've adopted it. Well, and we normally do. So the joke always has been that, you know, the Christians are just getting going to and really sinking their teeth into the latest management way of thinking about corporate organisation you know, that we're usually about 20 years behind the curve. We're just getting onto it as the world is realising all the problems with it and jumping yeah. off. And it, it raises this question, I guess it comes out into, into everything we're talking about, that as we interact with the wisdom of the world, it's not as if there is no wisdom in the world because God made the world and it's an intelligible place. It's a place that you can, you can observe and work with and you can come to learn things. You can come to understand that, for example, sluggardly laziness will tend to 
lead to poverty and ruin and hard work will tend to lead to a valuable and well-endowed sort of life. And so, But I don't need a degree in the humanities to have read the book of Proverbs. No. Because the wisdom, the wisdom of the world is, yes, the wisdom of this world, and there is a real wisdom in it. And the book of Proverbs do give us some Proverbs that you can find in Egyptian writings as well. Exactly. That was my point. Because it is the wisdom of this world, isn't it? Yeah. You should you should plant your crops first, then build your house, yes. as the proverb says, because you should secure your source of income before you start sinking capital into something. If you do yes. it the other way around, it's not going to work. Yeah. But a lot of it is already revealed to us in scriptures, isn't it? And what's more... The revelation of scriptures enables us to evaluate the wisdoms of this world because not all the wisdom of the world is right and the scriptures are right. So the scriptures help us to choose which aspects of the human wisdom we'll go along with and which aspects we will disparage will. And so if we'd read our scriptures and believed them and fought hard enough and I guess if someone did, I just don't know the, the history well enough. We shouldn't have been complicit with this racist view of Indigenous development. We should have said, no, we shouldn't be taking children away from their mothers because they're half-caste as opposed to full blood. That, that we should have known from God's word. Now, I don't know the history whether there were people who objected, but we should have. If we'd read our Bibles and thought Christianly, we would have. It's interesting you say thought Christianly because read our Bibles and think Christianly. It kind of goes back to what we were saying in our discussion recently about the regulative and the normative and the way that we read our scriptures and the way it shapes our thinking and the way we apprentice ourselves, as we said, to the way the Bible thinks. It's another example of the same kind of thing. Uh, it's not as if there's a verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not do this particular thing, take half-caste children from their parents. But if we read the way the Bible does speak about people, about parents, about families, about the obligations of and importance of families, if we schooled ourselves in the wisdom of the scriptures about the nature of the world and people and us and God and our relationships and responsibilities, about the what ethicists call the moral order of the world, the way the world really is and should be and the good that we should strive for in the world and, and under God, if, if we school our minds in that through the Bible... We come to these circumstances and we should sniff it and say, this smells all wrong. Yes. Uh, and then why is this wrong? And it will drive us to, to start to articulate what is it about this policy that clashes with how we think about people or how we think about church or anything. And it's exactly the same with management practices. When we well, come to think about... Let me, let me go up there because yeah. what you're saying there, uh, Luigia Donoghue says in that address, she says the great value of Christianity the value of the human being, etc., is something that was lost in the treatment of Indigenous people. Exactly right. Right? And she had the wisdom to see. I, I don't know how much she did or didn't embrace Christianity, but she certainly embraced that much of Christianity that she could see that what we did was the denial of Christian belief what we itself. Believed, yes. And there's the problem, that we've got to actually put Christian belief into practice rather than following the best practice. The best practice policy that's being urged upon us, which yeah. may come from all Well, management, kinds of, you were telling him about management. Yes, the well, same sort of thing. When we come as churches to think, well, which aspects of the wisdom of the world in how to run organisations, for example, or how to manage an enterprise, or how to work with a, a team of people, how to manage a workforce, as we call it these days, 
which aspects of what we've learned from all that endeavour and all the thinking and writing that's been done about all those different subjects should we plunder, as, as you say, from the Egyptians? Which yes. of those things should we plunder, plunder from, from the them? Egyptians. And which should we say, well, hang on, it doesn't smell right and it doesn't feel right and it, it isn't quite right because it clashes with with some part, some aspect of what I've learned from the scriptures about the way the world really is, or the way church really is, for example. Yeah. I can give you a couple of just language ones. Talking about the Department of Prisons as the Department of Corrective Services. To call what we do corrective services should put horror in any heart of any person who knows anything about Stalin. <laughs> it is a totally Stalinist term of prisoning people in order to, to correct them. In order to correct them. It's in order horrendous. to fix them. Another one is we no longer have human resources. I think it used to be personnel. personnel. We used to say you worked in the personnel department. Yes, yeah, so you now, cared for the personnel. Now humans are resources. resources that we it's a horrible term. Yeah. But we go to the HR and they tell us how to humanise our resources or resource our humans. Well, either way, it's bad. We shouldn't refer to people as resources. No, it's awful. Because the la- way you talk about things is the way you think about them in the end. It's the, the two are intimately connected. That's it. And the more that you style things and people as resources, the more that you start to instrumentalise people and see them as pawns to be moved around on the board to achieve yes. something rather than as people. And then there's a process. That is, nearly everybody in the secularist mindset says, here is a problem, A, how do we solve the problem, education or legislation? That's their only solution problems. The only two levers they've got? The only two levers. Now, we Christians believe in education. We Christians believe in government bringing legislation for justice to this world. But we don't think the solution always is education and legislation. We think regeneration is an important aspect. And we also diagnose the problem differently because we'll say, actually, the problem lies in human sin rather than just in being socialised badly, poorly educated or housed inappropriately. And so we really need to think and have confidence in the views and the Christian thinking of the Scriptures. Because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus Christ. That's correct. He's the, the, the key to the wisdom of the world, the key to understanding ourselves and God and the world. And it doesn't mean that in knowing Jesus Christ, we're immediately given the answer to every question. No. But it means we're given the wisdom, the, the foundation, the structure, the framework, the way of thinking and understanding ourselves and God and other people that allows us to think about what the world is really like. And we lose our trust. We just lose confidence in that, don't we? And we the world do. comes along so loud and so confident and so in our face and we don't want to be left behind and we don't want to be seen as outmoded and they're the experts. And so we kind of go along and become complicit in something that down the track we deeply regret. That's correct. And what part of Christian thinking is this world will never have its problems solved. <laughs> Christians were promoting a little while ago, you know, the end of poverty. It's a lovely idea. It's called the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not going to happen before then. Now, I'm not saying, okay, let's give up fighting poverty because, after all, it can't be solved. No, no, we should seek to solve it. But to solve it on the night, on the concept of we will be able to bring it to an end, well, that's a false expectation which will fail and will actually fail even in how we seek to change the world to bring about the end of poverty. It's never going to work. We need to think differently about poverty than that. 
and work and seek to bring amelioration of the worst aspects of poverty. I understand poverty. I've seen it from my own family background. It's you, you don't want it for anybody. But there's more to life than just throwing monies at problems. There's more to life than education. There's more to life than legislation. But there's not, there's not the hope that we're going to solve all the problems of this world in this lifetime. We need to fail and forgive and to help each other lovingly address the issues one by one as they come to us rather than with some grand revolutionary scheme that's going to solve the issues. It's come to us from uh, the thinking of the world and the experts who were wrong last time as well. Yes. <laughs> yes. Philip, give us a Bible verse to finish. So if there was going to be some part of the scriptures that wraps up this somewhat fluid conversation we've had that started with Lewitcher O'Donoghue and the problems, the terrible problems of our complicity with the policies of the government and ended up speaking about the need for theological wisdom, for trusting in God and his wisdom as we interact with the world. Is there a verse that comes to mind? Why don't you read Psalm 146 for us? Not the whole. It's a great psalm. Read it all. But about the princes. It's interesting, though. I'm just looking at it. It does talk about the, the widows and the foreigners. Interesting. Yes. Yes. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I'll praise the Lord as long as I live. Put not your trust in princes, in, the, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. It's a marvellous psalm, isn't it? Why don't you pray to finish us off? Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all good things because all good things come from you the creator of all, who loves us and cares for us and provides for us. Father, we're so sinful and we've so ruined your creation and each other. And we pray, Father, for your mercy and your care that you would continue to provide for us as you have provided the one true prince, the one true son of man who brings salvation to us all. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 